study of your word and speak to us. Lord, we're your followers. Most, if not all of us, have come to the point where we've understood that you are Lord and we've submitted our life to you. Lord, if there's anybody here that's with us this morning that hasn't crossed that line and made that personal decision to invite you in to be the Savior and the Lord of their life, I want to ask that you'd work in their heart, convict them, draw them, woo them, love them, that today might be a day of new life for them. So I would ask, Lord, for the rest of us that you encourage us to be disciples who stand for you in these in these crazy times. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Mark chapter six, 15. <clears throat> We're in the latter part of the chapter. We're going to be reading from verse 39 to the end of the chapter, verse 47, and then the first verse of chapter 16. Just to set the scene of where we are and where this context is, we are just after the six-hour crucifixion. Six hours was unknown for a person to be crucified for that little time. Roman crucifixion was the most barbaric and heinous way that they treated a prisoner. They killed him. They murdered him on a cross. And usually it would take anywhere from 12 to 24 hours, the longest crucifixions on record in the first century historical documents went 36 hours. Massive suffering. Jesus, a six-hour crucifixion and then he dies, is virtually unheard of in Roman history. But Jesus is the one that had control of his life. He said, nobody takes my life. I lay it down. I give my life. And when he was done, when the payment for sin had been made, you remember the declarations on the cross, right? There was darkness at noon. Uniquely enough, when noon darkness fell on the land and it was a darkness so thick, it says that they could feel the darkness. At noon, when that happened, at the same time, just maybe a half mile to a mile away, along the temple precincts, the priests were slaughtering Passover lambs. It started at noon. While Jesus is hanging on the cross and everything turns dark, it's at the same time that less than a mile away, Passover lambs are being slaughtered. And Jesus is hanging on a cross. You remember his proclamations, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, which, by the way, is a Jewish Messiah speaking Arabic. And you go, wait a minute, why, why did he do that? Why wasn't it Hebrew? Well, because in Jerusalem, there were different, there were four different language groups. There was the, the Jewish Jews, those that were, you know, Jews are cool and nobody else. They spoke Hebrew. But all the other people spoke, well, I would say, on, before I get there, on the other side were the Romans, who the, the right language was Latin. But then there was this, most people within the middle crowd they either spoke one of two things. If they were of Jewish type heritage or anywhere in the Holy Land heritage, they would speak Aramaic. That was a, tra- a trade language at that time. The others would speak Greek. Greek was the language of Alexander the Great and Greek culture when it conquered the world. It conquered linguistically. So everybody in Rome, from the Hebrew of Hebrews to the Romans to all of the other Jewish people that were secular Jews and just the Gentiles in Rome, everybody spoke Greek 
because that was the required trade language. And everybody spoke Aramaic. The Jews, and only the ones that considered themselves the holy Jews, spoke Hebrew. Why am I making such a big deal about this? Well, because Jesus' declarations on the cross, the two of them that I think are the most important, were made in Aramaic and Greek, not in Hebrew. Why? So that everybody could understand them. Which is Aramaic for my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It refers to Psalm 22 when it says God turned his back on the suffering servant because the sins of the world were placed upon him. That's the answer. Why did you forsake me, Father? Because you became sin. Because you had mixed sin. You had everyone's sin in this room. You had everyone, potentially everyone's sin in the whole world placed upon you. And the holy God, Psalm 22, where that comes from, the holy God turns his back on sin. That's why he abandoned him. Later, when the people didn't understand what he said, they oh, some of them think he's calling out for Elijah. He asked, I thirst. And whereas earlier he had rejected this, this myrrh drink that was kind of like a sedative that was given, he took some sour wine, some sour vinegar. And he just took it, I think, because so many people misunderstood the Aramaic statement, I think he took it because he wanted the next statement to be absolutely clear and nobody to misunderstand it. And that is the statement, it is finished. He said it in Greek. So everybody, the Romans would understand it. The Jewish Jews would understand it. The secular Jews would understand it. The Greeks who were there in Jerusalem, they would understand it. Everybody would understand. Those that came from Africa that were in, that were Jewish people that had come into Jerusalem for the Passover, they understood it because even in Africa, they spoke Greek as the main trade language. And he says, it is finished. What was finished? Well, it also means paid in full. The sins of the world have been paid in full by the death of Jesus. Hallelujah, guys. You don't have to keep paying for your sin. Oh, that means I can keep sinning and it's paid for? I'm going to paraphrase what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8 and 9. No, you knucklehead. No, you don't understand God's grace if you want to just keep sinning because grace has already covered your sin. No, true understanding of God's grace and his payment for our sin puts us in our heart that we want to follow him and obey him and honor him in whatever we do. That's the true understanding of God's grace. Did I just go out? I kind of did. I went out, went in. There's something about, I don't know, the, the vibes in this building, the electronic signals, they, they, every once in a while when I'm on a really good roll, they'll grab my sermon out from under me. <laughs> it is finished. And then it says, he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And he bowed his head and he died. That's what we're walking into. That's why his crucifixion was one of the shortest on record. Because he chose when he died. And he knew when sin had been paid for. And he died. He was in charge. So there are some characters that we're going to see in the verses that we're going to read. One is this guy known as the centurion. Not a centurion, the centurion. He's going to show up twice in the passage we're going to read. This is the guy 
that was in charge. Centurion, centurion means a guy who's in charge of a thousand soldiers. I'm sorry, a hundred soldiers. Century, centurion. So this is the guy in charge at the crucifixion where the Roman guys have nailed him to a cross, lifted him up, dropped him in the hole, torn his skin as he as the thing goes in the hole. And he's the guy that sanctioned it all. And the centurion, we're going to see him. We're also going to see this guy whose name is Joseph of Arimathea. He's a really rich guy. We're going to see, and he's also in highly influential on the Sanhedrin Council. We're going to see him. We're going to see Joseph of Arimathea's friend that Mark doesn't bring up, but John chapter 19 does, and that's a guy by the name of Nicodemus. Joseph of, of Arimathea and Nicodemus were two guys on the Sanhedrin Council that hung together. They were partners, and they were both secret believers in Jesus. We're going to see a group of women followers. And some of them, it seems like almost all of them are named Mary. There's Mary, Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James the Less and Joseph, and then another Mary. And of course you have Mary, the mother of Jesus, who has been at the, right at the, around the cross. And Jesus looked to her and he said, woman, behold your son. Look to John, John, behold your mom. And so he kind of entrusted care of his mom to the apostle John. So, but I mean, they're all named Mary. So anyway, uh, we're going to see these people. And here's what I want you to notice. Where are the 11 remaining Judas gone, 11 remaining disciples? When Jesus is arrested and taken to be crucified, all of them have done what? They fled. They've scattered. Now, John comes back and is hanging around near the cross because Jesus speaks to him. The others, if they're around, are at a distance watching what's going on because they have all split because of F-E-A-R. They're afraid. What's happening to Jesus might be happening to us in another hour. We're out of here. However, watch the confession of faith between this Roman centurion. What a surprise. Between this guy who is on the council named Joseph of Arimathea. What a surprise. And then these women, what a blessed surprise. So here we go. I'm just going to read with no commentary. I'll see if I can do that. Verse 39 through the end of the chapter and the first verse of chapter 16. And then I want to go back and look at each of these characters briefly. Here we go. Verse 39. This is when Jesus had said he'd given up a loud voice. It is finished. He breathed his last father into your hands. I commit my spirit. Verse 39. When the centurion, when the centurion, the guy in charge who was standing right in front of him. Saw the way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. Not a son of God was the son of God. What a confession of faith. There were also some women Looking on from a distance, among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James the Less, which would probably mean either James the Shorter or James the Younger. We're not quite sure which one, but different from the mother of James and John, the the wife of Zebedee. She's actually referred to next, but Mary, the mother of James the Less and Joseph and Salome. Now, Salome was the mother of James and John. 
She's the one who had come to Jesus just before the triumphal entry and said, Hey, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, I understand we're going to Jerusalem. When you come to your kingdom, would you appoint my sons, James and John, one at your right and one at your left hand when you establish your kingdom? You remember that discussion? That was Salome. That was the mom of James and John. Verse 41, when he was in Galilee... They, that is, these women that are mentioned, they used to follow him and minister to him there. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So lots of women. We're going to talk about women later, probably next week. Don't you love it, women, when we talk about you? Did you know, and guys, ever since, you know, when guys are 12 years old and on, that's almost all they ever talk about anyway is women, right? That's a joke. They're supposed to laugh at that. Never mind. Verse 42. When evening had already come. Now notice, evening to them is when the sun sets and the first signs of evening darkness happen. Usually around six o'clock. Because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. In this particular week, there was a holy Sabbath additional to the regular Friday night, Saturday Sabbath. It was one of those festival weeks that had double Sabbaths to it. So here we are, Jesus on the cross. He's still on the cross. He's dead. And it's almost the start of this special Passover week Sabbath. Now, that's important. From a Jewish standpoint, because you can't do work when the Sabbath starts. And you got these two guys that are Jewish guys, Joseph and along with him, John tells us Nicodemus was with him. They're going to come and ask for the body of Jesus to prepare a body for burial was one of the very few exceptions of work that was allowed to be done when the Sabbath started. So this was a legitimate request. Anyway, Joseph Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council. If you have a King James Version, it says an honorable counselor. We're going to talk about that in a couple of minutes. And he himself was waiting for the kingdom or looking for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate. And he asked for the body of Jesus. Well, Pilate wondered. If he, Jesus, was dead by this time, so he summoned the centurion. The one from verse 39. He questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, that Jesus was dead, he granted the body to Joseph. Joseph, a prominent member of the council, a rich man, Joseph brought a linen cloth And took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth. Now, don't picture a mummy wrap. It's not that kind of a thing. Picture a long linen cloth that the body is laid in and then turned uh, horizontally. It's a long, long cloth that flips over the top and covers the body. Then they have another headpiece that goes around the head. And then they wrap around the neck around the waist, and around the legs. That's what this... It was a shroud, much more than... So, you know, don't think of a mummy, okay? Think of 
a body laid in a shroud and tied up at the neck, the waist, and the feet. So he brings this linen cloth. John says it was a fine linen cloth. This was an expensive cloth. He took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. This is the first ever reference to the rolling stones. And uh, I'll wait for that to die down. He, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, they're referred to earlier. They were looking on to see where he was laid. And then chapter 16, verse 1, when the Sabbath was over, in other words, Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might come and anoint him to anoint the body. So that's the picture. That's what happens. After Jesus dies, his body is hung and just hanging there on the cross. Now, if the Romans wanted to accelerate crucifixion, they would typically go to the, the, the crucified person. If the crucified person was still alive, they would take one of those massive mallets and they would whack his knees and break his knees so that he could no longer push up to extend his lungs to gasp air and, and then he would die of suffocation within a short time. That was the way Romans accelerated the crucifixion process. Now, Jesus, Jewish... It was important that he be taken down from the cross before the Sabbath began, at least in the Jewish mind. And so when Jesus gave up the spirit, there's three hours left before sundown. In those three hours, what you have is Joseph of Arimathea. We find that Nicodemus is also with him. They go to Pilate. They get permission for the body. Then they go take the body to the tomb. So you understand the story, right? Okay, you're still with me. Let's look at three, the three characters. Actually, today we're going to look really at two, and we'll skim the third. But let's look at each of the characters. Remember the context. All of his disciples have fled because of fear. And what you have, the first guy after the death of Jesus that makes a public confession for Jesus Christ is the Roman centurion. Look at this guy again, verse 39. When the centurion was standing right in front of Jesus, right in front of him, he saw all this stuff. He's probably the guy, the centurion, that was overseeing the brutal torture and beating of Jesus in the courtyard and then whipping him, either probably ordering the whipping him by some other Roman guard as they're walking toward the Golgotha Hill, Calvary Hill. And this guy who has led the charge of hostility and hate against Jesus is now standing there on guard, watching his soldiers, watching the crowd to make sure nobody gets out of hand, and watching Jesus. Three hours into the crucifixion, everything goes black. Now, that, that would get your attention. Right after Jesus gives up his spirit and his head flops down, there's an earthquake. A massive earthquake. And then you have people yelling from less than a mile away. 
in Jerusalem proper that something's happening in the temple and then somebody comes running out and saying that big old thick curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. That Holy of Holies was the very evidence or the very symbolism of the presence of the holy God and people could not go into that place. The high priest could only go in there one time a year to make atonement for the sins of the people. And what they did when the high priest on his particular day, they were... They were picked by lot. Who was going to go with it? Because they had a, a multiple priests that served as high priests. Who gets to go in this year? Do you remember back when an angel spoke to Zechariah or it's Zachariah, John the Baptist's dad? It was by lot. He was chosen to go into the Holy of Holies. Now, tradition says first century history, they used to tie on the leg of the priest that would go into the Holy of Holies. They used to tie a rope to his leg so that if he had unforgiven, unrepentant, unrecovered sin, uncovered sin in his life, and he went into the very presence of God that he would be, he would be killed on the spot. God's holiness would consume him. Bam. They used to put little bells on the priest's robe that would go in. Jingle bells, jingle bells. You know, the priest is here today. (laughs) He'll walk through the veil for you to wash your sins away, you know. And so he goes into there and, you know, and and if he's fine, then it's sublime and your sin is gone. But if he's not, then he's dead. And the bells stop ringing. And the people drag him out. Dead. You see, you didn't really necessarily want your name to come out as the one chosen to go into the Holy of Holies. Just in case you weren't ceremonially and morally pure. Oh my gosh, I don't want to go in. And if if those bells stop ringing, what a drag. Now, when Jesus died, it says extremely clearly that that veil that separated the holy place where the priest daily went in multiple times with the Holy of Holies, which was a once a year entry, that veil was ripped in, in half and it started, the rip happened from the top to the bottom, a clear picture that God reached down and ripped it. What did he do? He opened up the access to directly into the presence of God. Now, they're hearing about this at the cross when Jesus gives up his spirit and stuff's going on less than a mile away. They're hearing the commotion, the earthquake, all of this stuff. Now, also, the darkness, the scripture says, was only for the three hours from noon to three. When Jesus died and gave up his spirit, guess what? When sin was paid for, for, all of a sudden, the sky lit up again. So the darkness, the instant light, the earthquake, stuff going on. The centurion standing there probably going, whoa, what's going on here? What's happening? What's happening? And Matthew even lists more supernatural things that happen. I'm going to skip them, but they're freaky. And here's the centurion, the centurion, the Roman guy who's in charge of what's going on. Here's his statement. Truly, this man was the son of God. What a confession of faith. When he made that confession of faith, he risked his position. 
He risked everything that he had worked for and gotten promoted up into. He was making a risk. What was he doing? Making a public stand. An incredible step of faith. I want, to, I want you to see Jesus' disciples have split. And here's this Roman that says, he's the son of God, not a son of God. Because they remember Romans believed in a multiplicity of gods, demigods, that half gods, half men, and all of the, you know, they had a bunch of them. This one is the one. You don't think that cost that guy something? He made that profession of faith, the centurion. And then, of course, we see him again in verse 44. Pilate hey, calls him and he says, is Jesus really dead? This is a short crucifixion. Is he really dead? And he questions him. And the, the centurion tells him what he's seen. Now, Matthew, or Matthew includes this. Mark does not. Matthew says that when Jesus gave up his spirit and hung his head and died, that just to make sure he was dead, one of the soldiers. Now, the soldiers don't do anything unless they're ordered. Who do you think ordered the soldier to take a spear and plunge it in the side of Jesus? Most likely, almost for sure, this centurion. This is the guy. And the centurion, it, it, Pilate, hey, centurion, was he really dead? Yeah, he was really dead. Do you remember it says when they stuck the spear into his side, what came out? Two things. Blood and water. Blood you would expect. Water means that that sack around his heart busted it's already done you can't live when that happens water blood he's dead he's for sure dead i saw it he is totally dead and this centurion a roman leader of a hostile roman troop you would never expect him to turn to jesus well he makes a public confession of faith incredible Look at Joseph of Arimathea. I want to talk to you about him. Joseph is really only mentioned around the crucifixion of Jesus. It says in the other Gospels that Joseph was of Arimathea was a very rich man. So you're supposed to say, how rich was he? So let's try that. Let's try that. Joseph was a very rich man. Thank you. I thought you'd never ask. This guy was so rich that Arimathea, though it was only 25 miles away from Jerusalem, north of Jerusalem, Joseph had bought a, a, a rock hill or a small little, you know, wherever they carved the tomb in that was solid and had people, he paid people, check this out, to go and take hammers and chisels because they didn't have massive gas-powered, high-electric, hydro equipment to cut the rock. They took hammers and chisels and must have spent hours and weeks and months chiseling out this rock. I was getting ready this morning and I kind of just looked at the bathroom in our house. I've been to the garden tomb in Israel. Amazing sight, which is just a little bit bigger than our bathroom at home. But I'm thinking, what would it have taken to carve our bathroom, just the square footage, you know, it's four to five feet high. What would it have taken labor wise to carve that out of a stone? Well, this guy was rich enough to go get one of those, to order one of those, to pay for one of those. 
why did he want to be entombed in Jerusalem anyway? I mean, he was 25 miles away. And that comes, the whole reason behind that comes, at, at least Josephus tells us, first century historian, that the Jews that had the money, they loved to buy tombs in Jerusalem right near the Mount of Olives. Because the prophet Zechariah in the Old Testament, there's a prophecy that says that when Messiah comes to establish his kingdom, he is going to come and his feet will set foot on the Mount of Olives. And so I've been to the graveyard at the Mount of Olives. And there are boxes. If you're not rich, you just get thrown into a box. And then eventually, you know, your body decays and what's left in the box is bones. There is a boneyard today at the Mount of Olives, facing the Mount of Olives. And all of them, our, our guide in Israel said, when they are laid down, their boxes laid down and buried, they want their head to be facing, or head to be to the, what would that be, the west. And the Mount of Olives is in the east because they anticipate and they look for, according to Zechariah's prophecy, when Messiah stands on the Mount of Olives, and there's an earthquake and the resurrection happens, they all want to rise up and have a good seat. And that's, they're even in the right posture, ready to watch Jesus or watch who they think, their Messiah. They didn't accept Jesus. But Joseph of Arimathea, he's wealthy enough to buy a rock and then the contract to have it hewn out. Now, you got to realize in the first century, uh, they were kind of weird what they did with tombs. They were family gathering sites before they were used to house a dead body. And it was not uncommon for them to have a little picnic in the area, in the tomb that they had established that would be their family site. Now, John makes a specific point of saying that in this tomb that was hewn out by at Joseph of Arimathea's direction, no body had ever been laid. In other words, it was a recently done tomb. It wasn't the tomb of his father's and no dead body had been in it. Joseph comes and he says to Pilate. Now, Joseph, remember, he is, I told you the King James has this phrase, honorable counselor which actually was a first century designation to, to very few individuals that were on the, the Sanhedrin. The Talmud says that there were only 14 such guys that were designated as honorable counselors in the history of the Sanhedrin. This guy was one of them. What does that mean? That meant he was like the top dog. He was the top influencer on the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is a Jewish council uh, of Jewish elders. And this guy was the leader, the honorable counselor, the big influencer. The New American Standard says that this guy was a, um, a prominent member. Literally, it's an honorable counselor. That was his title. So he's top dog on the Sanhedrin. Now, wait a minute. Jesus had just gone before the Sanhedrin, before the crucifixion. And what did they say? Away with him crucify him. The gospel of Luke makes a special point of saying that Joseph of Arimathea was not in agreement with the Sanhedrin's desire to kill Jesus because he was a secret follower of Jesus. Well, the scripture also says 
that he was the partner of Nicodemus. Nicodemus, Mark just focuses on Joseph coming to Pilate and saying, can I have the body of Jesus? Basically, he wants to honor the body of Jesus. John says that Nicodemus was with him and together they sought the body of Jesus. Now, you do remember Nicodemus, right? Shake your head. Yeah. Rattle, rattle. Yeah. Okay. Nicodemus is mentioned only in the book of John three times. In John chapter 3, that's when Jesus and Nicodemus have a conversation. And Jesus makes some really pertinent and interesting statements about Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to him. It's at night. This was the first ever Nick at night. He comes to him and he says, Teacher, we know that you are from God. For nobody can do the things you do except God be with him. And Jesus kind of cuts through all of the... You know, all the the nicety. And he says, hey, Nick, truly, truly, I'm going to say to you, unless you're born again, you will never see the kingdom of God. And then, of course, Nicodemus says stuff like, well, wait a minute, born again. Are you telling me I have to crawl back? Look at the absurdity of this question. Am I going to crawl back into mommy's womb and be reborn? And I can see Jesus is going. Do you guys remember Lurch on the old Adams family? And he says, he says to Nicodemus, very interesting, specific words. Are you the teacher? Not a teacher. Are you the teacher of Israel? And let you don't, and yet you don't understand these things. How can that be? When Jesus made that statement, are you the teacher? Nicodemus, as Joseph was the resident leader of the Sanhedrin, the most influential Nicodemus, he was the scholar. On the Sanhedrin. He was the teacher of Israel. History tells us that he taught in what was called the school of Gamaliel. Which was a place where Jewish rabbis were trained and all this. And Nicodemus was the most popular and the best teacher. He is the teacher. He is the voice of the scriptures to the Jewish people. And yet you don't understand this stuff. And then Jesus goes on to tell him what being born again means. Apparently... Nicodemus accepted the lordship of Jesus because later, chapter 7 in the book of John, we see Nicodemus and the Sanhedrin beginning to discuss after Jesus healed somebody on the Sabbath. That was a no-no. When he heals somebody, the Sanhedrin gets together, the council all together, and they're trying to decide how to put him away, how to do away with Jesus and how to kill him. And it says, Nicodemus says, no, we don't do that kind of stuff. That's, so he, he debates. And so one of the other guys on the Sanhedrin says, and it's in John chapter 7, he says, Nicodemus, are you a follower of this man too? And of course, he doesn't say anything. He and Joseph of Arimathea become the secret followers on the Sanhedrin. And so in John chapter 19 When John makes a point of saying this Nicodemus goes with Joseph and together they ask for the body of Pilate. I'm I'm sorry, they ask Pilate for the body of Jesus. Just like the centurion when he made his confession of faith, Nicodemus and Joseph, they're standing now as people who are going to honor Jesus. And I think Pilate, quite honestly, Pilate didn't like the Jewish people. He, didn't, he, he felt like he got framed and pushed into telling the Jewish people, go and crucify.